0: Genesis two twenty four through twenty-five and Revelation twenty-one one through five. In Genesis two twenty-four we read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And then we go to Revelation chapter twenty-one, verses one through five, and here is the connection that I want you to see uh, that just as Uh, The Old Testament begins, uh, not at the very beginning, but near the beginning of of the book of Genesis, uh, with a description of the first marriage, the marriage between Adam and Eve. So too, uh, the New Testament ends or concludes with a description of a marriage, uh, that is the marriage between Christ and his bride, who is the church. And I want you to see this, because I think it is is significant uh, in that uh, we are to notice that the marriage relationship between husband and wife is to reflect something, it's to be a picture or a symbol of another marriage, that is, the marriage between Christ and his church. Then I saw a new heaven, and new earth, John said. For the, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Who is this? It is, it is the church, all of the redeemed of Christ, So far, the reading of God's most holy word. May the Lord bless the preaching of it today. May he bless us also as we seek to apply his word uh, to our lives. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I would like to take some time now to give attention to the topic of of marriage. Uh, My plan as of today is to devote seven sermons to the topic of marriage. In fact, my plan has already changed since I wrote this introduction. It will be eight, if not more. I'm going to devote eight sermons uh, to the topic of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And I want you to remember that I did something very similar with the doctrine of the Sabbath as we uh, progress through uh, our study of the book of Genesis. and, And as we encountered the creation narrative of Genesis 1, we noticed that it concluded by making mention of the Sabbath day. There we see the Sabbath mentioned in Genesis 2, 1 through 3. And after moving through the text of Genesis 1, verse by verse, I devoted eight sermons to the doctrine of the Sabbath. And I want you to notice that something similar happens in the creation narrative of Genesis 2, which we have been considering. Uh, There we find in Genesis 2, a description of God's creative activities with special attention given to the creation of the man and woman. And then the narrative concludes by making mention of the marriage covenant, by making mention of the marriage covenant. And I think it is interesting that both the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and the creation narrative of Genesis 2 conclude with institutions. After creating the heavens and the earth, God instituted the Sabbath day. After creating man, male and female, having entered into a covenant with man, God instituted the marriage covenant. And I would like to suggest to you that this pattern is deliberate. It seems that the Sabbath command brings to the, the creation narrative of Genesis 1 to a conclusion because the Sabbath functions as a sign of God's creation of the heavens and earth and of the promise of eternal rest that was held out to the man who was made in his image. And so, too, the marriage covenant brings to conclusion the creation narrative of Genesis 2 because it functions as a sign of God's covenantal relationship with his people. Uh, the Sabbath command and the marriage covenant though they differ greatly from one another, share this in common, they signify or symbolize for all humanity truths concerning God and His relationship to man. Whenever the Sabbath day is properly observed, something is symbolized by it concerning God's relationship to His people. And whenever marriage is properly entered into, something is symbolized concerning God's relationship with His people. And so, We have these two narratives, Genesis 1 and 2. They tell us of God's creative activities, and both conclude with institutions. The creation narrative of Genesis 1 concluded with the institution of the Sabbath day, and the creation narrative of Genesis 2 concludes with the institution of marriage. I'll leave it to you to think more about this. If I go any further, uh, this introduction will turn into a sermon all of its own, but for now, I simply want to say that I think it is appropriate for, appropriate for us to tease out the topic of marriage now that the principle has been introduced to us in Genesis two twenty four through 25 just as we teased out the topic of the Sabbath after it was introduced to us in Genesis 2, 1-3. Uh, both the Sabbath day and the marriage relationship were instituted by God at creation. They are for all humanity, and they are symbolic institutions. Uh, Please note that the marriage relationship was instituted by God. God is the one who created the marriage relationship. He established it in the beginning when he created the first man and the first woman and joined them together as husband and wife. And I hope that you are able to recognize how important and how foundational this idea is. The marriage relationship was instituted by God. Uh, you've noticed, no doubt, that people are very confused about marriage in this culture. Uh, There was a time, I think, when the majority of the population actually agreed that marriage was a covenant into which one man and one woman would enter for life. Uh, Things are different now. Uh, The popular view today is that two men may marry, or two women. Um, Why it is, honestly, that polygamy or polyandry is still taboo, I'm not entirely sure. I would imagine it's only a matter of time before Uh, This also is tolerated, uh, that is, unless God intervenes within our culture. Uh, Notice also that divorce is much more common and accepted within our culture today than it once was. People are very confused about the institution of marriage, but I want you to recognize that all of the differences of opinion that exist within our culture concerning marriage can be traced back to a more fundamental question, namely, where did the marriage institution come from? How did this thing that we call marriage come to be? And many in our culture would say that the institution of marriage came from man. In other words, marriage, in their view, is the product of societal evolution. A long time ago, someone somewhere decided that it would be beneficial for man and for society to have this institution that we call marriage. And marriage, according to this view, arose spontaneously from the ooze of humanity, if you will. Uh, Where did marriage come from? Many within our society will say it's the invention of man. But what does the Christian say? Uh, What is our view? Our our view is that the institution of marriage came instead from God. God created the marriage relationship. God is the originator of marriage, and he therefore is also the orderer of marriage. He created it, and he is the one that determines what it is, what it should be. And I want you to note how how it is these differences of opinion regarding the origins of marriage that produce all of the other differences of opinion that exist within our culture today. If the marriage institution was, in fact, created by man, then we might rightly reason that man is also free to regulate it. If marriage is the product of societal evolution, then we should actually expect that the institution will undergo constant change. Uh, for many within our culture, the legalization of, of gay marriage is viewed as progress, you see. It, it, it's progress that has been made, they say, it, and it fits perfectly with their presuppositions concerning the origins of the institution. They applaud the legalization of gay marriage because they have first believed that the marriage institution came from man and is constantly evolving. Therefore, who is authorized to decide what marriage is according to their view? Man is. Man is authorized to decide what marriage is because man is the one who created the institution from the start. But if marriage was instituted by God in the beginning, if it was in fact designed by him, then we should not expect nor desire that it be changed. The Christian does not say, how might we improve this thing called marriage? But instead, O Lord, help us to conform our marriages to your will. If God is the originator of the marriage institution, he is also the order of it. Our place is to not create new ways, but to conform our lives to the ways that our creator has established. Do you want to have a marriage that gives glory to God? Uh, Do you want to have a marriage that is true and right and good? Uh, Do you want a marriage that is blessed of God? Then to his word, we must go. We must begin by asking, what have you said, Lord, concerning marriage? And after that, we must say, Lord, help us to conform our lives to your most Holy Word. What do we learn about the marriage relationship when we look to the pages of Holy Scripture? I have three foundational observations uh, to make uh, concerning the marriage relationship. My original intention was to uh, present them all to you today. Uh, But after sitting down to write this manuscript, I found that I needed to only uh, tease out the first of these observations and to leave the next two for next week. But here are the three foundational observations that I have for you. One we will deal with today and two next week. Uh, First of all, we learn uh, that marriage is a covenant. Marriage is a covenant. Secondly, we learn that marriage is for the glory of God And thirdly, we learn that marriage is for the good of humanity. Again, I'll elaborate on the first of these today and return to the last two next Sunday, Lord willing. To quote one author, marriage, and here is a definition of it, is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community. I think this is a very helpful definition of marriage. Uh, simply put, marriage is a covenant, but a more elaborate definition would be marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community. Uh, to enter into a covenant is to make a solemn promise. To enter into a covenant is a very serious thing. I hope you would agree with me on that. To break a covenant is a grave sin. Notice that the word covenant does not in fact appear in Genesis chapter 2. There we simply read, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, The word covenant does not appear here, but clearly it is the marriage relationship that is being described to us. And though the word covenant is not found here, the rest of scripture makes it clear that the marriage relationship is established By way of covenant. How do we enter into a marriage relationship? It's by entering into a covenantal relationship. It's by making promises uh, to our spouse. It it is by entering into and taking vows. Other passages could be cited, but Malachi 2.14 will suffice. Uh, There the prophet is found rebuking the man who has abandoned his wife, saying, The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Listen to how the prophet Malachi describes the, the marriage relationship. He is saying to the man who has been uh, faithless, who has been unfaithful, he is saying to him, the Lord was a witness when you made that covenant to that woman. And he is rebuking him for his faithlessness. A marriage is a covenant. The relationship is established by making a solemn Oath or promise. And the rest of what I have to say today is simply an elaboration upon that idea that the marriage relationship is a covenant. I have five subpoints to make concerning the marriage covenant. First of all, the marriage covenant notice is made between one man and one woman. The marriage covenant is to be made between one man and one woman. Last Sunday I, I read from Mark ten. And that passage where Jesus was being questioned by the Pharisees concerning divorce. Do you remember that passage? Uh, the Pharisees came to Jesus and they were wondering, um, when is it appropriate to divorce uh, our wives? And I, I pointed out how Jesus appealed to this passage here in Genesis two twenty four through 25 in order to establish God's ideal for the marriage relationship. In, in essence, he didn't even answer their question. But he said to them, you're asking me, when is it appropriate to divorce our, our, our wives? But here is God's ideal, and he appealed to this passage in Genesis two twenty four through 25. Remember how Jesus replied, replied to their questions. He said, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In due time, we'll come to consider the topic of divorce and remarriage. Uh, For now, I simply wish to demonstrate how Jesus himself, think of it for just a moment, Jesus himself, he interpreted the Holy Scriptures in this way. He looked to this passage in Genesis 2 as setting forth God's ideal for marriage relationship. He understood it to be foundational. He understood that when God created the man and the woman and joined them together in one flesh union, it established a pattern to be followed. Where do we find God's design for the marriage relationship? We find it at the very beginning of time in Genesis chapter 2. Here is the ideal. Here is the pattern to be followed. It's found here in this text. Jesus himself interpreted the scriptures in this way. And what is God's design for the marriage covenant? Well, his design is that one man and one woman enter into it. It is not right for a man to marry another man. It is not right for a woman to marry another woman. It is not right for a man to marry multiple women. And it is not right for a woman to marry multiple men. All of these things are violations of God's design for the marriage relationship as established here in Genesis chapter 2. Marriage was instituted at creation. Adam and Eve entered into this covenant. This pattern, therefore, was established for all humanity living in all times and at all places. Have societies deviated from this design throughout the ages? Of course they have. But insofar as they deviate from God's design established at creation, we must say that they have been in error. A homosexuality uh, is everywhere condemned as sin in, in the pages of Holy Scripture. This is not just true of the Old Testament, but also the New And it should not be difficult to see, therefore, that homosexual marriages are sinful and are not valid in God's eyes when compared with the plain teaching of Holy Scripture. They are sinful relationships and they deviate from God's design for the marriage covenant. Uh, We might deal with this question. I think it is important that we do. Do men sometimes feel attracted to other men? Uh, Do women sometimes feel attracted to other women? I do not doubt it at all. But this does not mean that it is right to act upon the feeling. And I would ask this question of you, what kind of world would we live in if we allowed ourselves to be governed by this rule? If I feel it, then it must be okay for me to act upon it. What kind of world would we live in if we were allowed ourselves to be governed by this rule? I think even the homosexual would have to admit that they would not want this rule to govern all conduct. And so I ask, tell me, what would you say to the drunkard who says, I was born this way? Would you not lovingly come alongside him and say, Friend, I understand that your desire is to drink to the point of drunkenness, and I understand that it is a very strong desire that you've had your whole life. In fact, it probably feels as if you have been born this way, and I do not doubt that you were born perhaps with this predisposition to this particular sin. But what would we say to that drunkard? You must fight that desire. Uh, you, You must not act upon Uh, This feeling that you have, You, you must live a sober life, even though everything in you is driving you to drink, to drunkenness. And what would you say to the angry and abusive person who says, I cannot help it, the feelings of rage are so strong within me, they are all consuming. Would you not say to that individual, would you not say to them in a loving way, I understand that your desire to be given to rage is very strong, but you must fight against it. And what about the adulterer? What about the adulterer? What about the liar? What about the thief? Who all would say the same thing. There's something in me that makes me want to do these things. Would you not say to them also, though the temptation is so strong, you need to resist the temptation. You would have compassion on all of these individuals, I'm sure, because of the inner struggles that they have, but you would have to speak truth to them. Uh, You would not want to be living in a world governed by this rule. If I have an inner desire towards something, then I am free and it is right and good that I act upon it. Why it is that we accept this explanation when it comes to the sin of homosexuality, I'm not entirely sure. I think we're terribly inconsistent within our culture. Um, Above all else, I would ask this, who are we to disagree with God, who time and time again calls homosexual relationships and acts sinful in his most holy word? Those who experience same-sex attraction need Christ. Uh, That is what they need above all else. Uh, We all know what it is to have our affections bent out of shape because of sin. You, You can identify with them in this regard, can't you? Don't you know what it is to have your affections all bent out of shape? Don't you know what it is to have strong desires towards things that are clearly wrong and sinful? And don't you know what it is to to run to Christ, to say to him, help me to overcome these sins. Sanctify me, Lord, according to your truth and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Change my heart to the very core so that I no longer desire these things that are evil and wicked, but so that I desire things that are according and consistent with your most holy word. I want you to listen to what Paul had to say to the Corinthians, because I think it is appropriate here. Here is what he said uh, to the Corinthians, to Christians, mind you, to Christians. He said to them, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he makes it plain that if you are these things, if you are living these things out constantly and in an unrepentant way, do not expect to inherit or enter the kingdom of God. It will not happen. But listen carefully to Paul's words as he wrote to the Christians living in Corinth. He went on to say, And such were some of you. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What is Paul's view of the church? He does not view the church as a collection of individuals who are not tempted and to, to sin in these ways. But he looks at the church and he says, You used to live this way yourself. You also used to be drunkards and liars and gluttons and thieves. You also used to be homosexuals, living according to these passions within you. But something has changed. You have been washed by Christ. You have been justified by him. You have been sanctified by him, so that you are no longer these things, but you now are Christ's. Uh, His identity is is yours. Uh, Such were some of you, he said. Uh, You Christians prior to being washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ were those things, but not anymore. Uh, The scriptures are clear that it is a sin to practice homosexuality. Certainly God does not view homosexual marriages as valid for they are sinful relationships and a distortion of his original design for marriage. Marriage, valid marriage, is to be entered into by one man and one woman for life. The same could be said of polygamous and polyandrous marriages. They are a distortion of God's original design. In the beginning, God created one male and one female and joined them together in one flesh union. And therefore, this is God's design for the marriage relationship. This is the pattern to follow. The two become one in marriage and they were to stick together like glue, is what the scriptures are teaching. Uh, It is interesting to notice, though, that many of the biblical patriarchs and and heroes of the faith so-called did enter into polygamous relationships. Have you noticed this as you've read through the pages of Holy Scripture? I want you to think even of Abraham. Think of his grandson, Jacob. Think of King David. Uh, These men of renown, these heroes of the faith, actually took more than one wife to themselves. Uh, This this problem, this thing that appears as a problem in the, holy, in the pages of Holy Scripture would not be so difficult to understand if we would simply recognize, first of all, that not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. Not everything in the Bible is prescriptive. Some things are. When we see something described in the pages of Holy Scripture, it is set forth as a pattern or as an ide- ideal. Clearly, Jesus viewed Genesis 2 in that way concerning the first marriage relationship. Here is the pattern, ideal. Not only are we being told what happened, but we are saying this ought to happen. It is prescribed to us through the narrative, but not everything functions in that way. Sometimes things are only descriptive, and in fact, that would be the case of the life of Abraham and of Jacob and David concerning their marriage relationship. It is simply being described to us what it is that they did. When the scriptures reveal that Abraham took Hagar as his wife alongside Sarah in his old age, it does not mean that it was right. It simply describes what happened. And I would like for you to notice, uh, the, for those of you who know this story well, that the narrative itself suggests that it was wrong for him to do so. Why did Abraham take this, this second wife? Well, he did so uh, because of his lack of faith. He did so because he began to think the way of the world. He did so because he tried to take matters into his own hand, and he probably reasoned to himself, the rest of the world lives this way. Why shouldn't I? Uh, truth be told, it was a very foolish move. It was the result of unbelief. It was a decision, a decision that resulted in so much heartache, so much trouble came out of that decision that Abraham uh, made. This was Abraham deciding to go the way of the world and acting according to human wisdom instead of believing upon God and following after him. The same can be said for Jacob and David. Uh, and so notice that the scriptures are not always prescriptive, but sometimes descriptive Secondly, we must acknowledge that although there are some things about the lives of the patriarchs that are to be admired and imitated, uh, namely their eventual faith in the promises of God, the scriptures, if you notice, actually emphasize their sins and their shortcomings. We will see this as we progress through the book of Genesis, when we're told of the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's as if uh, the the, the scriptures are, are honing in upon everything that was wrong with them, all of their shortcomings, all the ways in which they stumbled, these things are constantly being brought to the forefront. Our natural inclination is to bury those things, right? To emphasize that which is good about us and to minimize that which is bad. But the scriptures are constantly emphasizing the mistakes that the patriarchs made. Why? So that we might understand that all of this, all of the good that they did do and all of the good that came from them was the result not of their own righteousness, but it was the result of of the grace of God. Uh, That is what the narrative is telling us. And so, uh, that would be true of many of the things that they did, particularly their polygamous marriages. Uh, They would be an example of this. Uh, They were wrong for them even in that day. Where do we find God's ideal for the marriage relationship? It's not in the life of Abraham, nor uh, the present trends within our godless society, but it's in the Holy Scriptures in general and at, at creation in particular. Uh, The marriage covenant is to be made between one man and one woman. Two, notice that the marriage covenant is to be made under God. Uh, This covenant is made under God. Uh, There is a horizontal dimension to marriage, no doubt. That's obvious. A man and a woman, they stand before one another and they take vows. There is the horizontal dimension to the marriage relationship, but there is also a vertical dimension uh, to the marriage relationship. The man and the woman take their vows before God, before God. And I want you to listen again to Malachi two fourteen. I've already read it, but hear it again. It says The Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And listen again to Jesus' words in Mark ten. He is there commenting on the Genesis two passage, and he said, What therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. And so when a man and woman enter into the marriage covenant, God is involved. That is the point that I am making. God is witness to the covenant being made, and God is the one who joins the man and woman together in one flesh union, so that the two become one flesh. And I think this is why Jesus offers these words of warning, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Uh, the, The warning is this, those who participate in the undoing of a marriage covenant are in fact undoing a work that God has done. They are, in essence, fighting against God, fighting against God's design, fighting against God's work. And notice that I did not say all who have been divorced are fighting against God. Uh, For there are valid grounds for divorce, given in the pages of Holy Scripture, as we will come to see. But what I said is those who participate in the undoing of a marriage covenant. Uh, It is these, and I have in mind here the unfaithful husband or wife, the seductive woman or man who draws the spouse away, or those who facilitate the ungodly act. These are, in fact, fighting against God and should expect His judgments. And I would say, Lord, have mercy on us in our culture. Uh, The marriage covenant is one that is made under God and before him. He is involved in it. Three, notice that the marriage covenant is also made before others. I suppose the only exception to this rule would be the wedding of Adam and Eve, for it really could not be any other way. Uh, there were no other humans uh, to witness uh, their their marriage, their wedding. I suppose we could say that God and the angels attended uh, the marriage of, of Adam and Eve as they also attend our marriage. Uh, wedding ceremonies. Uh, But throughout the scriptures, we do notice that marriage vows would be made before witnesses. Uh, Consider, for example, the wedding of Ruth and Boaz in Ruth chapter 4. Consider the wedding events in the Bible that are described as feasts involving the community. Consider that Christ himself uh, performed his first miracle at a wedding in Galilee when he turned water to wine. Uh, When we take wedding vows, we say them before God, but also in front of man. And why do we do this? Well, in part, because the marriage institution is good for society. It's one of the benefits of it. It's one of the reasons that it was given. It is a building block for society. Uh, When we have healthy marriages within our societies, uh, the society flourishes. And so we stand before God. We stand before our, our future spouse when we take our wedding vows. But we also take those vows in front of others. Others witness the vows that are being made. And the vows that we make in the wedding ceremony are are very important, friends. They're they're very important. Why am I going through this in such a tedious manner right now? There are people in this room who are are married. You need to be reminded of the importance of the vows you have made. Amen? Uh, There are people in this room who also hope to marry in the future. How important it is for you to understand these basic foundational principles before you enter into the covenant of marriage. And I want you to hear this, that the vows that we make in the wedding ceremony are very important. The vows are what communicate the substance of the covenant being entered into. We are entering into a covenant. We stand there as as male and female, as eventual husband and wife, and we make promises to one another. We are entering into an agreement, and it is the vows that we say that communicate the substance of that agreement. They are the promises that are made. And I would also suggest to you that the traditional vows, what I call the traditional vows, are the very best ones. I would actually warn against novelty in the wedding vows. It is not uncommon now for people to write their own vows, and I'm not altogether opposed to that, but I would also use the traditional ones. That would be my encouragement. Or I would encourage you to be sure that the vows you have written are consistent with the traditional ones uh, that have been honored for a very long time now and viewed as appropriate in our culture and in other cultures. I would also uh, warn against using the vows as a time for comedy. Uh, I've performed a number of wedding ceremonies over the years. I very much enjoy it. Over time, I've developed some very firm convictions uh, concerning things I will not do in a wedding ceremony. First of all, I will not serve the Lord's Supper to the bride and groom, nor to those in attendance, because the Lord's Supper is a, is a church ordinance. So I've developed that conviction over time. And also, I won't put up with silliness uh, in, this, in the stadium of the wedding vows. I've seen this time and time again, where people use this as an opportunity to joke around, uh, to make the audience laugh, to be playful with one another. I'm thinking, this is so solemn This is such an important moment. You are here making promises to one another. It's not a time for silliness. Be a comedian some other time. Right now, you should be taking this so seriously because you are making a promise to your spouse to to live this way with her or with him for the rest of your life. So don't be silly with it. Uh, Make promises that are biblical. Make promises that are true. Don't go beyond uh, these promises that need to be made in the wedding covenant. I promise I will never leave the toilet seat up. You know... You probably will. Do you really want to be guilty of breaking your wedding vows by, by, by making that mistake? You know, I don't think so. Say what needs to be said and shut your mouth. <laughs> and take these vows seriously. A bride and groom should say something like this to one another in the presence of God and man. Listen to the simplicity of the statement. It's biblical. I take you to be my wedded spouse And I do promise and covenant before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful spouse in sickness and in health in plenty and in want in joy and in sorrow as long as we both shall live. What are you promising? You're you're saying I'm taking you to be my spouse, my husband or my wife, and I am going to to, to love you and I'm going to be faithful to you no matter what life brings. If it's pleasant and, and prosperous or if it's very difficult, I will be faithful to you as long as we both shall live. And so the vows that we make, we make before others, and I am suggesting to you that they are very, very important. Uh, if, a, if, if a man and a woman are preparing for their wedding day, what, what do you think the things that first come to mind are, you know, in terms of preparations that need to be made? Venue? Dress? cater, Flowers? What's missing? What are we going to say to one another? What is the covenant we're actually going to enter into? What are we going to say? What promises are we going to make? Oh, oh yeah, the vows. Oh, yeah, the vows. I forgot about the vows. That's the very first thing we should say. In fact, I would suggest to you that your wedding could be held in your backyard, in plain clothes, with plain food served afterwards, right? With just a few witnesses present, but if you have the vows, you have a marriage. A covenant has been made. A covenant has been entered into. So let us put our attention on the things that actually matter uh, to the marriage relationship. Four, the marriage covenant is what authorizes sexual intimacy. The marriage covenant is what authorizes sexual intimacy. I think we need to le- learn to think carefully about this subject here. Sex outside of marriage outside of the marriage relationship, is a distortion of God's design. Put more bluntly, it is sinful. Uh, the world really does scoff at this idea. Uh, they, they scoff at this idea, but the, the scriptures are so clear. And And you would even think that the godless society would be able to recognize the slew of troubles that come upon men and women when they engage in sex outside the bonds of marriage. Think of the troubles that, that men and women find themselves in. So many of them could be traced back to to this decision, you would think that they'd be able to recognize, maybe this this isn't right. Maybe we shouldn't be doing it this way, but we should be waiting until we are wed to engage in this act. It's important to recognize that sex does not create the one flesh union that Genesis 2.24 describes. The act of sex does not create the one flesh union that Genesis 2.24 and Mark 10 mention. The joining together of a man and woman as one flesh does not happen through intercourse. Instead, it is the marriage covenant that joins a man and woman together as one flesh, and the act of sex is a sign and seal of that union. The reason that sex outside the bonds of marriage is sinful is because it is a misuse of God's gift, Sex is to be enjoyed by a husband and wife. It symbolizes their union. It aids in their intimacy. It is the means of procreation which is appropriate for those who have been joined together in marriage. To engage in sex outside the bounds of marriage is a misuse of the gift of God. I think an illustration that would be helpful here would actually be that of the Lord's Supper. Uh, Christians will understand this illustration. I'm not sure if the non-Christian will understand it. But I might ask you this question. Who should partake of the Lord's Supper? It is the one who has faith in Christ who shall partake of the Lord's Supper. Partaking of the Supper does not, in fact, unite us to Christ. Faith does. But the Lord's Supper is a sign of the covenantal and spiritual bond that exists between Christ and his people. It is highly inappropriate, therefore, for someone who does not have faith in Christ, who has not been united covenantally and spiritually to Christ, to partake of the Lord's Supper. Do you understand this? What is the thing that unites us to Christ? Not partaking of the Supper, but faith in Him. And what is the sign of of that union? The Supper is. And so it is appropriate only for those who are actually united to Christ by faith to partake. And so it is with sex. Uh, Sex does not make the one flesh union, but it is a sign of the one flesh flesh union that comes into being by way of marriage covenant, you see. And so when we engage in sex outside the bounds of marriage, we, we partake of the sign without having the substance. It is therefore a profaning of that which is holy. And this is why Paul, when speaking against sex outside of the bounds of marriage, says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. Uh, What he is saying here is that sexual intimacy is appropriate only for those who have been wed, who have been wed, who have made a covenant with one another. Five, the marriage covenant is to last until death. The marriage covenant is to last until death. As I said before, in time we will come to talk about divorce and remarriage. Uh, the scriptures do say that there are valid grounds for divorce. Specifically, they are adultery and abandonment. In the case of adultery and abandonment, divorce is permitted uh, because with those acts, the marriage covenant is so thoroughly violated. It is it is destroyed, and so it is permitted. It is not insisted upon, but it is permitted permitted and we will come to deal with these things carefully in the weeks to come. But today I'm making the more foundational observation. And this is the same observation that Christ made when the Pharisees came up to him saying, what are the grounds for divorce? He he made this foundational observation and he presented God's ideal for the marriage relationship. It is to be for life. It is to last until death. Uh, Remember the definition of marriage, the marriage covenant that was given earlier. Marriage is a lifelong covenant of companionship between a man and a woman that has been established under God and before the community. That the marriage covenant is to last for life is also heard in the traditional vows, which I've already read, which conclude with these words, as long as we both shall live. And this was, in fact, Jesus' perspective. When the Pharisees were asking him when divorce was permissible, he decided to set forth the ideal for the marriage when he said, what therefore God has joined together Let not man separate. And this was Christ's interpretation of the passage that is before us in Genesis 2.24, which says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Uh, Jesus' understanding of Genesis 2.24 was that it set forth God's ideal for marriage, and God's ideal is that the husband and wife would break with the household they were raised in and would establish their own household. And having been made one flesh, they would stick to one another like glue. That is my a translation of, of this passage here. That is the idea. You're, you're breaking with the household that you were raised in, in one way or another. And you are establishing your, your own. And you are to stick together. You are to cleave together. You are, you are joined together in one flesh union. And therefore, you are to hold fast to one another. God's design is that the marriage be permanent. And I think it is so important for this to be said. It is important for those who hope to marry in the future to hear this. They need to understand now and not after the fact that when they stand before God and man to take their wedding vows, they are not saying, well, we'll see how it goes. Instead, they are making a promise. They are taking a vow to be loving and faithful to the one standing opposite them for life Uh, This way they will do in sickness and in health, in plenty and in want, in joy and in sorrow. And they will do this as long as they both shall live. Uh, This is important for those who hope to marry in the future to hear, and it's also important for those who are married now to hear. It is good for us to be reminded of these things, that we have entered into a covenant with one another. The, The trouble is that many do not mean what they say when they take their wedding vows. With their mouths they might say something traditional like loving and faithful in sickness and in health and plenty and want and joy and sorrow but in their hearts they mean I'll stick around so long as you fulfill me so so long as it, as it goes well I'll be faithful so long as things go well I'll remain so long as you make me happy you know with their mouths they say I'll stick by your side through thick and thin Even if life is very difficult, but in their hearts they mean, as long as I am satisfied, I'll be by your side. Lord, help us. In the marriage covenant, we are vowing to be loving and faithful to one another, even if things go very, very poorly, even if things are very difficult. Brothers and sisters, let me make a few points of application before we conclude. Do you see that there is a connection between God's covenantal relationship with his people and the covenant of marriage? This is fascinating to me. and Maybe it's not fascinating to you, but this whole mention of the marriage relationship in Genesis 2 24 and 25 just kind of pops out of nowhere. Did you notice that? Creation narrative God made Adam, garden, placed him there, made Eve, helpmate, entered into a covenantal relationship with them. And oh, yeah, uh, they got married. You know, institution of marriage just kind of pops out of nowhere. Why the mention of this? It is because the marriage relationship from the beginning was designed by God to function as a picture of the covenantal relationship that exists between God and his people. What has just been described to us in Genesis 2 is God entering into covenant with Adam. And then what are we given at the end of the text except this institution uh, that functions as a picture of it? Our marriage relationships, brothers and sisters... Are to, are to be a picture of God's covenantal faithfulness. Uh, just as we, as husband and wife, are united together, we are in union with one another, and we are to be faithful to one another until death, so too uh, we are in union with our God if we are in right relationship with him through faith and Jesus Christ. It's to be a picture of it. And I would ask, is your marriage a picture of God's covenantal faithfulness? Is it a picture of that? When people look at your marriage, do they see Christ there? Do they see Christ pictured and portrayed? Do they see the grace of God there? Do they see the love of God there? Do they see companionship, union, intimacy? Do they see those things? Do they see faithfulness? Do they see forgiveness portrayed in your marriage relationship? When people look in upon your marriage relationship, they ought to see Christ there and the fact that through Christ we are united to our God in the covenant of grace. What is it that holds your marriage together? I'd ask you also that question. What is it that holds your marriage together? What is the glue? Will it last so long as you feel satisfied? Is that the glue? Is happiness, your personal satisfaction, the glue that holds your marriage together? When that happiness or personal satisfaction dissolves, does the marriage break apart? Or will your marriage last because you have made a promise, you see? Is that the glue that holds the marriage relationship together? I hope it is this second thing, because you have made a promise and entered into a covenant. Indeed, this is our only hope for our marriages to last until death, as we have promised that they would. It has to be covenant that is at the core. I I am going to be faithful to you, because I have promised to be. And it may be that my emotions are sending me this way or that, but I am going to be faithful to you, because I have made a promise to you. I would wonder also, are you selfish or selfless in your marriage relationship. I think that many, many people make this grave mistake. They enter into marriage because they think they will be personally satisfied through the relationship. They have selfish motives from the beginning, and then when they wake up next to their spouse on the day after their wedding, they have selfish motives in their heart. I hope you continue to to meet my needs and satisfy me and serve me. And then 10 years later, they wake up and they look across. They say, I hope you will satisfy me today. That marriage is going to be difficult, brothers and sisters. But if we enter into the marriage relationship selfless, that is we look across to the one we are marrying in that moment, and we say, my my whole objective is to please you, to serve you, to satisfy you, to encourage you. If that is our motive from the beginning, and if when we wake up the next day, we, we look across the bed and we say, my, my objective today is to serve you, to satisfy you, to please you. What can I do for you? How could that marriage ever go wrong? How could it go wrong if one of the spouses is doing that? Especially, how could it go wrong if both are doing it? Brothers and sisters, are you... Selfish, or are you selfless in the marriage relationship? To those not married who hope to wed in the future, I do hope that you would agree that it is important for you to understand marriage before entering into it. I pray that you would think deeply about these things, that you would choose carefully who it is that you marry based upon the principles of God's word, that your marriage in the future would be established upon biblical uh, principles. May God be glorified in our marriages, brothers and sisters. May the love of Christ be displayed as we serve one another and extend grace to one another in Jesus' name. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the marriage relationship. We thank you for all that it pictures. We thank you for what it pictured at the beginning of time. God, your covenantal relationship with your people. It has even become a more rich and vivid picture now that Christ has come and has laid his life down uh, for his people. Uh, Father, We pray that our marriage relationships would indeed point to Christ. Help us as husbands to love our wives as Christ has loved the church. Help the wives uh, to submit to their husbands and to honor them just as the church does to Christ. May you be glorified, God. And of course, our desire is that we would be blessed also. But Lord, help us to have this in the right order. May you be glorified in our marriage relationships. It's in the name of Christ that we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.